Welcome back to the KPL Podcast. I'm your host, Jagisha. Listeners, welcome back to the KPL Podcast. This week, we are talking to Ellen Baker, the author of The Hidden Life of Cecily Larson. Welcome to the podcast, Ellen. Thanks so much for having me. So to start us off, uh, just tell the listeners what the book is about. Sure. So The Hidden Life of Cecily Larson is the story of Cecily, who in 2015 is 94 years old, and um, she ends up in the hospital with a broken hip. And while she's in there, her family decides to send in four generations of DNA without her knowing it. And it ends up turning up the story of her past, which she had never shared with her family, and throwing everything into question. Yes, there's lots of hidden twists and turns in this book. There's so many things that... uh... You know, I think if my grandmother was was had all this, it would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what inspired the story? So I was inspired to write this by a few different things. Um, the first thing was I've always lived in small towns all my life, and I find it really interesting how um, people seem to know things about you without you having ever told them. And so I was kind of curious about this question of, would it be possible to keep a secret in a small town? Mm-hmm. And if you did manage to do that, um, what would be the consequences of that when the stories finally came out after, in Cecily's case, it's like 70 years she's been living in this little town and managing to keep the secrets of her past hidden. So that was kind of where I began. And then um, I've also always been interested in stories about, um, you know, DNA mysteries and um families that find out secrets about themselves from that. So so I decided that would, you know, be related to to what the secret was that Cecily had been keeping. Um, and from there, um, just kind of took shape from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I found the whole DNA part fascinating. Um, I mean, I hear about it so much lately. It's we actually did a program here at the library where they were talking about, you know, using ancestry and one of the the title was how, you know, how not to accidentally send someone to jail because, oh. you know, sending in your DNA and they, you know, it's in the police database somehow. But uh, so what are your thoughts on, on places like ancestry? Well, um, I'm a private person, so I had never wanted to do ancestry knowing that my DNA would then be part of the record forever kind of mm-hmm. thing. But what I read um, that changed my mind was that all, enough people have done testing that we're all basically mapped anyway. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't almost make a difference um, whether you personally do it or not. They kind of know who you are and where you come from. Um, so so that was part of the reason why I decided to go ahead and just um, send in my DNA and get the results back. Um, otherwise, I, I hadn't really wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. But I do think that... Um, you know, it's it's definitely got its pros and cons, and we could probably talk about it it all day. Um, mm-hmm. I've certainly read a lot of personal stories in my, both in my research for this and in um, just out of curiosity myself about um, people whose lives have been turned upside down by these kind of test results. So, um, so yeah, I think it's definitely a, a question that could be debated for hours and weeks and days and years, which I think it, it will be into the future. So that was partly why I wanted to write a novel about it too, because it, it is a an issue that um, it has no clear answer. There's no clear right about it. Um, 
rightness, I should mm-hmm. say. And um, and it causes drama for people, for sure. It, yeah, yeah. From a lot of the stories that I've heard, the same. And yeah, I think I'm in the same boat as you or what um, that you were in about not submitting it and, and you know, privacy and all that. So yeah. if you don't mind, if you don't mind me asking, did you learn anything surprising? Um, not terribly surprising. Everything that I learned was really the same as what I had been told growing mm-hmm. up. So, so I didn't have the experience of, you know, finding a long lost relative or, you know, that something in my family wasn't the way it was supposed to be. The mm-hmm. only thing I found out that was um, different than what we thought was that I had thought I was mostly Irish on my dad's side. And it turned out I was mostly English on my dad's side. So not a, not a huge, um, not a huge difference there. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. No secrets then. <laughs> yeah, not for me personally. <laughs> so the book has quite a big cast. I mean, there's a lot of, there's, you know, Cecily and the different uh, members of her family. And so just how did you go about creating all these different characters? Well, I knew that I wanted to have the multiple generations. So it's four generations. Cecily is 94. Her daughter, Liz, is 68. Her granddaughter Molly is 39 and her grand, great-grandson Caden is 14. And I needed the great-grandson in there because he's the one who is doing the DNA project for school. So um, so in order to get down to him, there were already the four major characters. And then there's another family that comes in, um, which needed to have at least two generations in there. So, um, so I've got... Um, yeah, it's, it is a big cast of characters, and um, I tried to braid their stories together in a way that would make it clear um, how they're all connected, but also give them each their due as far as like what is each person going through in their life mm-hmm. at that stage in their life, um, at that, and what are they struggling with, what are they um, uh, trying to get through toward, because we're all kind of trying to get somewhere in life. Mm-hmm. Um, even actually at 94 is, has a really big goal out of her, which is to recover from this accident that she had. So, so they are, they all have something big going on at the same time that, um, the DNA stuff is happening in the background. Yeah. I mean, they're each character has their own background and story and, and they were all very fascinating. And I just enjoyed, you know, as you switch different, uh, points of view, uh, really enjoyed learning more about each character. Oh, thank you. So now Cecily is known to bake the 15 layer cake. Uh, Have you, do you bake uh, or do you bake? I've actually never pictured a 15 layer cake. (laughs) Um, I don't bake a lot. Um, What happened with that is I had read this article in the New York Times about 10 years ago about a woman in Alabama who bakes these, I think she may even bake higher cake, 15, 20 layers. Mm-hmm. And um, I, it was, I, I actually have an interest in regional food and in food ways, um, more so than actually doing it myself. I kind of like to study it. So um, so I was fascinated by this article and I, I thought someday I'm going to put that in a novel. And um, so that's what I did. I figured out that Cecily, a, a way that Cecily had learned how to make this cake, which was, it's really a Southern tradition and Cecily lives in Northern Minnesota, but she picks it up along her travels and makes it for her community meetings as she's um, trying to raise funds for 
um, all these projects that she likes to do in her little town in northern Minnesota. So mm -hmm. it was something that I was inspired by by an article that I had read many years ago. And I think most novelists you talk to will tell you that they are always filing stuff away like that in your memory bank or your actual file and saying, I'm going to use that someday. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I talk to a lot of authors all the time. So they're always I'm like, yeah, I read about this somewhere. So and they, you know, have it uh, tucked away for, for future use. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> all right. So Cecily, as a young child, is adopted and um, is part of the circus. So if you were to run away to a circus, what would be your act? Oh, what a good question. Um Let's see. I think probably like Cecily, I would want to be a bareback rider, um, even though I have this is a complete dream. I have no experience with horses. I have no gymnastic ability. But of course, you want to be the star, right? So, so I'd probably want to be the bareback rider. And I don't really like heights, so I wouldn't want to be a trapeze artist. Um, but I do love animals. So so, yeah, I would be like Cecily and be a bareback rider. Good choice. I think that was uh, all the descriptions about uh, just her learning as a kid and and um, Isabel, her teacher. Uh, so do, what was the research you did to kind of get all of this different background into the story? Yeah, so I had to do a tremendous amount of digging to find out what it was like to be a bareback rider, um, kind of not only the sensations involved so I could describe it, but then I had to figure out like, Cecily's a little kid when she starts learning. She's only seven. So she's mm -hmm. too small to to use a big horse. She has to they get her a pony so she can learn. Um, and so I had to figure all that out, like what kind of training they did. And I, I did find some uh, accounts of people, of women learning to be bareback riders, but no accounts of children. So I had to mm -hmm. kind of adapt it for what I thought might be the case that they would do with her to try to get her to be strong enough because they had to be incredibly strong. Um, and so Isabel, who is Cecily's mentor in the in the circus and is kind of her older sister in the fictional world of the circus that they create for the show, um, Isabel is extremely strong and Cecily's always looking at her saying, I wish I could be strong like Isabel. I'm going to be as strong as her. I'm going to learn how to do this because Cecily of course is terrified that if she doesn't do she doesn't learn this really dangerous terrifying job that they're going to send her back to the orphanage or as she thinks about it she thinks well they'll just drop me off at the side of the railroad tracks some mm -hmm. that I don't even know where I am mm -hmm. so highly motivated to learn slightly terrified and she does it she um she figures it out and she learns and um so I think from a very young age, Cecily is is extremely strong-willed, strong-minded, and becomes very strong in body learning how to do this job. Absolutely. And even, you know, as I, you know, learned about her, even in her, you know, in her 90s, she was still just this, um, you know, very strong, independent person and, yeah. you know, kept her daughter and granddaughter on their toes. <laughs> yes, she did. <laughs> So now the circus, which actually one of the things that interested me was that the circus traveled by train. Is that based on a real circus? Um, were there circuses traveling that way? It's based on how circuses really did do it back then. And 
at the time that I was writing about, so 1930, um, late 1920s, early 1930s, there were actually a number of uh, circuses that were traveling around that way. Mm-hmm. And the way I did the research for that was there was this tremendous 40-page article in the Journal of Transportation and Logistics that described the details of how the Ringling Brothers Circus, which was, of course, the biggest circus in the United States at the time, it described in detail how they would move their huge, huge circus every single day and and how they did that. Um, so I, I researched using that article and then I compared it to how smaller circuses were operating at the time. And in the late 20s, they were definitely using the um, they were definitely using the train going town to town. They would travel maybe 60 miles a night, um, 40 to 80, I think. So they would have a schedule that would bring them town to town to town to town, day to day to day to day. And it was a tremendous amount of work to take everything down, put everything up. Mm-hmm. And by the middle of the 1930s, most of the circuses that still existed because it was hard times. And you'll read about in the book that um, they're having a hard time making a go of it by the middle of the 1930s. And all the other circuses have moved to traveling by truck. But the ringmaster of Cecily Circus says that, uh, I forget his words, I think he just he says it's uh, reeks of desperation, I think mm-hmm. is what he says. He wants to keep traveling by train, but it's very expensive. And um, yeah, so it's very much based on reality and what they actually would have done. Um, my circus is completely fictional. I made up every single thing about it, but it's based on a conglomeration of all the little circuses that I um, that I researched. Yeah, no, I think your descriptions were just amazing. Like all the details, the number of people that it probably took to put the tents up, take them back down. Uh, taking care of the animals. So yeah, I was, I was fascinated. I was like, wow, a lot of research went into this. (laughs) Yeah. It was a huge operation, even, um, even for a small circus. My, Mm. um, my circus is just a one ring circus because I personally couldn't keep track of a three ring circus. I don't think, but I had lists and lists of who was doing what, when, and who was living where, when, because they would live in different parts of the train during the Mm -hmm. traveling days. And then in the winter, I had to figure out where they would all go for the winter. I ended up saying that they lived on a farm um, in outside of Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin, because that's an area I'm familiar with. But um, uh, if you research into it, you'll find that a lot of these circuses did have these winter towns. And um, Ringling Brothers had a huge, huge one um, down in Florida, I believe. Oh, okay. You'd be wrong about that. I can't remember, but... Um, but yeah, they had a huge winter town where all the performers and animals would stay for the winter. Nice. So a major theme in your book is family. Um, so could you talk a little bit more about the theme and your just thoughts on what makes a family? Sure. That's another great question. Um, so in the book, um, Cecily long longs for family. Um, she doesn't have one to start. Her mother drops her off at the orphanage when she's four. And she's always waiting for her mother to come back. Her mother doesn't. And when she's um, sold off to the circus when she's seven, she's devastated because she thinks now my mother's never going to find me. And she continues to hope that somehow, somehow her mother will find her in the circus. And of course, as a reader, you kind of know that that's a 
pie in the sky idea, but Cecily really hopes for that until she's probably um, 10 or I think there's a scene when she's 10, when she realizes this is never going to happen. So this is something that she is just desperate for, the sense of belonging, the sense of knowing, knowing that she has a place uh, with people who care for her. She looks for that in the circus with the, with Isabel, who is her pretend older sister in the act. And Isabel winds up betraying her in a really profound way. I won't talk too much about that because that'll give away too much of the story. Mm-hmm. But but as Cecily moves forward after that betrayal in her late teens and, and 20s, she really struggles and she doesn't believe in love anymore. She doesn't believe in family anymore. She doesn't believe this, this is something that could ever be uh, possible for her based on everything that happened to her. And so it takes the, the really gentle soul of Dr. Larson, who she meets when she's a patient at the sanitarium. Uh, she gets tuberculosis when she's 19. And Sam Larson is her doctor and falls in love with her. But it takes her many, many years to come around to the fact that um, love is possible for her. And it takes a... Um, event that's kind of like a bolt of lightning to make her realize what uh, what is possible. Mm-hmm. I think um, certainly with, with all of that um, story around the idea, um, what I was thinking was just of exploring, um, exploring that question, what does it mean to make a family? I don't know that I have an answer. What, what I do know, I think, is that it's love. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what Cecily comes to learn, even, you know, in the very end of the book, when she's um, 95, she's turned 95 by the end of the book, and she's learning even still what it means to not have given up hope. Mm -hmm. So I think that, yeah, I think I've just talked my way through a long story to say, I think what makes a family is love. Yep. Uh, so let me go another direction with this. Um, is Lana, for example, struggles with um, identity? So how much of your a person's identity is tied up to family? This is another question that that I had to really stretch my imagination for because I've been very fortunate in my life to know where I come from and who my family is and what my background is and ancestors and many generations that I'm aware of who they were. Mm-hmm. And Lana, um, the character in the other family that I mentioned, um, which turns out to be connected to Cecily in ways that nobody expected, um, Lana does struggle with her identity because she appears different than her sister and her mother. And she doesn't know where this difference comes from. Mm-hmm. So she winds up making it her life's work to study identity from what I've read of people who have that experience, I think it's a burning question that sticks with them for their lifetimes of not knowing who they who they are and where they come from. So, um, so again, not having had that experience personally, but having stretched my imagination to try to imagine what that would be like, um, I did feel like for her, it would be a burning consideration throughout her life of needing to uncover where she comes from and where these characteristics, physical characteristics that she has come from and um, what her background really is. So yeah, I do think that for people who who have that experience, it's it's very central. And, they, mm-hmm. and people, 
um, require to know where they come from, I think. Yeah, definitely. So it's always fascinating because I have several um, friends who are adopted and they actually don't want to know anything about the families. They don't want to, uh, other than maybe medical history, they they are perfectly like, I don't really want to know. I'm okay. <laughs> so maybe not for everyone. So, yeah. and I think I did have differences amongst my characters too, but Lana mm -hmm. was the one for whom it was just incredibly important because she she just was that kind of person. She's a very dogged researcher and she mm -hmm. needs to know the truth about everything. And so if you're that kind of person, that's how it would be. And if you're kind of a live and let live and I've had a happy life with great adoptive parents, then that's a, a wonderful place to be as well. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can go either way. Yeah. So what was your writing process like? So, I mean, you have multiple characters, multiple points of view, and also multiple timelines, because uh, you are going back and forth between at least two timelines. Yes. Um, so my process was to sit down and write, write out a chronological timeline of the entire novel, the events of the novel, as I could see them, like 1924, Cecily's four years old and her mother drops her off at the orphanage. And then all the way through up to 2015 and what was going to happen during that time period. And then all the times in between when characters had significant events that I thought should go in the novel. So I had the chronological timeline and I started with writing a prologue, which is the scene in 1924 when Cecily's mother drops her off at the orphanage. Mm -hmm. And then I, knew I wanted to go straight ahead to Cecily being 94 years old. And then um, after that, I was going to fill in the arc of the life story of Cecily and all the events that are of importance in between. Um, so I didn't know how I was going to do that. And I just really took it step by step by step. And I took it scene by scene. And every day I would sit down and say, okay, where do I want to go next? And that was how it kind of mm -hmm. un unfolded for me, because I like to, I like to be surprised a little bit as I'm writing. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't like to know all the answers. I do like to have a idea of, um, you know, where we're going, but I don't necessarily want to know everything because um, I, I like to be surprised along the way. Yeah, yeah. I imagine it's it was quite a task of keeping uh, track of everybody and who said what and. So I, this book is about to come out. So at the time of recording, the book has not been released yet, but will be released in a few weeks. Um, so I always feel weird asking this, but what's next? Are you are you already started on the next project? Um, I am working on on something. I well, I'm working on a couple of things. Um, so I I definitely have plans and and ambitions to get another book out in the world someday soon. But um, yeah, so I'm hard at work now. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Last question is uh, that we always ask our authors is what are you reading right now? Or what do you recommend we read? Yeah. So a new book that I read recently, um, which I really admired a lot, is called The Night Parade by Jamie Nakamura Lin. And this is um, a speculative memoir. It's really different than your typical memoir that you would read. And it um, it's really incredibly well-written. It's um, beautifully illustrated by the author's sister. And it talks about her experience with mental illness and grief. Mm -hmm. And um, 
really beautiful book. Um, so I, I highly recommend that one as a new release. I'm also reading Signal Fires, a novel by Danny Shapiro. And I really love Danny Shapiro's writing. I read her book Inheritance as part of my research for this um, novel that I wrote, mm -hmm. which is about her experience of finding out that her biological parent wasn't wasn't her uh, the person she thought was her biological father wasn't um and that I highly recommend that memoir as well so those are a few things I could recommend oh nice yeah I've heard about uh signal fires uh I think you're like the second author who's recommended it now that I've talked to she's really good mm -hmm. so thank you so much for your time this was so great uh, I just loved learning more about this book well thank you so much for having me I really appreciate it that's our show this week Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget, coming up February 21st, we have our One Author, One Kirkwood event with author Brendan Slocum. So just go to the library's website and look for One Author, One Kirkwood to get your tickets. It's a free event, but you still need tickets. Until next week.